The Way of God and the Way of Righteousness and Justice by Rabbi Yaakov Medan. The Midrash states, He placed eastward of the Garden of Eden the Kruvim and the revolving flaming sword to guard the way. This refers to the way of the world, Derech Eretz, the Tree of Life. This teaches that Derech Eretz precedes the Tree of Life, and the Tree of Life is none other than Torah. As it is written, it is a Tree of Life for those who grasp it. In this statement, as in many others, Chazal clarify their attitude towards these two foundations of man's obligation in the world. The two sides of the scale that represent man's labor are Derech Eretz, good character traits, good deeds, and interpersonal relationships, on the one hand, and faith, Torah, fear of heaven and man's relationship with God, on the other hand. What is the ratio between these two? Which is more important? Can there be a contradiction between them? And if so, how can it be bridged? We shall examine this question from the perspective of the path chosen by the founder of our nation. On the one hand, Abraham was the first and firmest believer in one God, in a world that was immersed in idolatry. As we read in the Gemara, Rabbi Yochanan said in the name of Rabbi Shimon ben Yochai, From the time that God created the world, there was no one who called him master until Abraham came along and called him master. On the other hand, Abraham also established a doctrine of kindness, hospitality, compassion, righteousness, and justice. For I know him, that he will command his children and his household after him, that they should observe the way of God, to perform righteousness and justice. What then is the proper balance between these two values, faith on the one hand, and righteousness and justice on the other, which mold Abraham's world? To answer this question, at least in part, let us now discuss what the various commentators have to say about God consulting with Abraham with regard to Sodom, and the meaning of the verse explaining this phenomenon. For I know him, that he will instruct his children and his household after him, that they should observe the way of God, to perform righteousness and justice, in order that God may bring upon Abraham that which he spoke to him. The commentators fall into three main categories. 1. Rashi and Rashbam connect God's consultation with Abraham with the promise of the land. Since God is coming to destroy this portion of land which was promised to Abraham, he tells him the reason for it. As we know, in Sodom it was not only the people who were destroyed, but also the very land itself. That all the land is burned with brimstone and salt. It is not sown, nor does it bear, nor will any grass grow on it. Like the overthrow of Stom and Amorah, Adma and Svoim, which God overthrew in his anger and in his wrath. Rashbam goes on to explain that with the words, in order that God may bring upon Abraham that which he spoke to him, the Torah refers to the inheritance of the land. The problem with this explanation is that there is no explicit mention here of the inheritance of the land. 2. Ramban, Rabbi Yosef Bechor Shor, and other commentators explain that the story of God's consultation with Abraham concerning Sodom is meant to express Abraham's great spiritual stature following his circumcision. God does nothing in the world without notifying and consulting with him. 3. Most of the later commentators, Abarbanel, Sforno, Malbim, Nitziv, and others, as well as Radak and Chizkuni on For I Know Him, tend towards a third interpretation. God tells Abraham about Sodom, so that on this basis Abraham will command his household after him to perform righteousness and justice. He will teach them about the punishment of Sodom, and will warn them not to follow the path of wickedness. These commentators raise further ideas about what it is exactly that Abraham will teach his children concerning Sodom. We shall not elaborate here. But these explanations are likewise insufficient. On the one hand, 
It is difficult to read a warning of punishment to Abraham's descendants into the verses, as Radak in his school would suggest. The verses themselves, explaining why God tells Abraham about Saddam, exude love for and closeness to Abraham, rather than rebuke and warning. Indeed, this reflects the opinion of Ramban quoted above. But the commentators who adopt Ramban's approach fail to explain the nature of this special quality that the verses would attribute to Abraham according to their view, his inclusion in God's deliberations and management of the world, and what need there is for it. Further on, I shall attempt to answer this question, arising from Ramban's approach, which I shall adopt on this issue. In my view, the key to answering many of the questions surrounding the events at Stom can be found in a Midrash quoted by Rashi. And he sat, the text says that he sat. He wanted to stand up, but God said to him, You sit, and I shall stand. And you will thereby provide a sign for your descendants that in the future I shall be present among the judges as they sit. As it is written, God stands amongst the divine assembly. The accepted interpretation of God's standing amongst the divine assembly is in accordance with Rashi and the other commentators on Tehilim, that God is present in the council of the judges to judge together with them as one of them. This would appear to be borne out by the continuation of the verse, In the midst of the judges shall he judge, that God himself renders judgment among the other judges. However, this interpretation fails to explain the words of the Midrash Rabbah quoted above. The Midrash treats the words standing literally. In a Jewish court the judges sit, while God stands. But the president of the Beit Din sits, like the other members of the court. In fact, he is given the seat of honor. Furthermore, in the image created by the Midrash, Abraham sits while God stands before him after he has come to his tent. It would seem that the Midrash in our parasha is interpreting God's standing in Abraham's tent in the spirit of, the men who have the argument shall stand before God, before the Kohanim and the judges. God, as it were, is standing before Abraham as a plaintiff standing before the judge. The parallel between the angel's visit to Abraham's tent and their visit to Lot supports our thesis. When God reveals himself to Abraham, we are told, as he sat at the entrance to his tent. When the angels appear before Lot, we read, Lot sat at the gates of stone. This would suggest that Lot sits at the gates of stone as a judge, and Rashi indeed comments, on that day they appointed him a judge over them. Another parallel, similar to the one between the entrance to Abraham's tent and the gates of stone, is to be found in the Torah's discussion of a betrothed girl who has relations with someone else. This too appears in a judicial context. They shall bring the girl out to the entrance of her father's house, and the men of her city shall stone her with stones, that she may die. You shall bring out both of them to the gates of that city, and stone them with stones, that they may die. This parallel would seem to suggest that we may view Abraham sitting at the entrance to his tent as a judge, and God, who comes before him, as the plaintiff, as it were. The Midrash, in drawing the parallel between Abraham sitting at the entrance to his tent and the judges in whose counsel God stands, is connecting verse 1, God appeared to him, with the story of Sodom. Upon this view, the revelation to Abraham is meant to tell him about the fate of Sodom. The story of the three visiting angels interrupts this matter, and after they leave, the Torah returns to the original subject, as Rabbi Yosef Bechor Shor explains. But while Radak and Abarbanel, who adopt this interpretation, explain that the revelation was meant to teach Abraham that he should warn his children and his household after him not to follow the ways of Sodom and Amorah, in order not to meet the terrible fate that befell these cities. In other words, God appears as the judge, and Abraham is one witnessing the judgment. The Midrash would seem to present God as bringing the judgment of Sodom before Abraham, 
who sits as a judge at the entrance to his tent. God, the plaintiff, stands with the people of Sodom, the defendant, before Abraham, who sits in judgment. Abraham is required to come to a verdict concerning the punishment that God, the plaintiff, wants to bring upon Sodom. Chazal note the difficulty in presenting Abraham as a judge of God's actions. They interpret the verse, Abraham was still standing before God, as a correction. Abraham was still standing before God. It should say, God was still standing before Abraham. This is a scribal correction. Nevertheless, the idea of God standing, as it were, before a mortal judge, before the judges of Israel, is to be found explicitly in the Gemara. The judges should know whom they are judging, and before whom they judge, and who is destined to hold them culpable. Likewise, we may note Rashi's comment on a verse in Divrei Amim, Your hearts should be, in each and every case, as though God was standing before you in judgment. Let us be more precise. God appears in Sodom's case not only as the plaintiff, but also as the judge, as Abraham declares, Shall the judge of all the earth not do justice? But at the same time, God's case is brought before Abraham, and his role is somewhat like that of an appeals court. Indeed, God accepts Abraham's opinion, and ultimately declares at the end of the session, I shall not destroy for the sake of the ten. Our conclusion from the Midrash, that Abraham sat on the seat of judgment concerning stone, brings us to understand Abraham's role in the argument differently than most of the commentaries. It also leads us to further conclusions as to the meaning of the entire episode. According to the commentators quoted above, God simply notifies Abraham as to what he is going to do to Stom. He reveals to him the decree that has already been passed, in order that he will guide his household and teach them about sin and its punishment, because Abraham is the lord of the land, or God's close associate. Rashi writes, Shall I then destroy the children without notifying the father, whom I love? And the other commentators concur with this interpretation. Ramban explains that Abraham could have changed the decree through his prayer, had the people of Stone been deserving of this, but even he agrees that the decree had already been passed. The problem here concerns the meaning of the words, I shall descend, then, and see whether it is as the cry that comes to me that they have done, in which case to destroy, and if not, I shall know, which would seem to imply that the fate of Sodom had not yet been sealed. Radak notes that Sodom's fate had already been sealed by the time God spoke to Abraham. Even though everything is revealed and known to him, this is written in order to teach man not to be hasty in judgment. Chizkuni and Ramban likewise grapple with this problem, each solving it in his own way. Both maintain that God had already reached his judgment, and his descent to observe Sodom was meant only to bear out the truth of his judgment in the eyes of man. Even Rashi, who maintains that the verdict of Sodom was not yet finalized, posits that its share of wickedness was complete. God still gave the city a final opportunity to repent. If they persist in their rebellion, destruction is what I shall bring upon them. But if they do not persist in their rebellion, I shall know. Only a Barbanel, and in a similar vein Malbim, understands Stom's judgment as not yet final. God descended to Stom in order to test the people and view their actions. This descent is actualized in the arrival of the two angels in Stom. They come to see how the people of Stom treat their guests. A Barbanel writes, For this purpose God sent his angels there, to perform an experiment and a test to see whether the people of Stone would actually do what they had planned and agreed to do, or not, for the matter was dependent on their actions. In other words, when God spoke to Abraham, the people of Stone still had the power to steer their verdict in the direction of God's mercy, had they received their angelic guests properly. 
The angels were not originally sent with the mission of destroying Sodom. They were angels of mercy. They came to give Sodom an opportunity to follow the path of Abraham, to perform hospitality. It was only the wicked reception that the people of the city extended to the angels that sealed their verdict. It was this that changed the approach of mercy into strict justice. This was the sin of Sodom, your sister. She and her daughters had pride. They were sated with bread and peace and quiet, but they did not strengthen the hand of the needy and destitute. Whether we adopt the approach of Abarnel or that of the other commentators quoted above, the emphasis is on the sin of Sodom and the consequent punishment. According to most of the commentators, the fate of Sodom is sealed because of the sins that preceded God's revelation to Abraham. According to Abarbanel, it is sealed once the angels visit there. The possibility that the righteous people of Sodom will save the city from its punishment appears nowhere. This possibility is nothing but an innocent hope that burns in Abraham, who is unfamiliar with the city and unaware of the behavior of its inhabitants. There are not fifty righteous people in Sodom, nor even ten. It is an altogether wicked place, and its punishment is determined accordingly. The problem here is that this conception pushes to the margins the negotiations between God and Abraham concerning the possibility of saving the city. Abraham is not asking that God forgive the sin of Sodom. He makes no attempt to judge the people of the city favorably. He does not ask God to be tolerant, nor does he try to bring the people of Sodom to repentance. The sole anchor of salvation to which Abraham ties his hopes is that the righteous people of Sodom will protect the city. If this possibility is not a realistic one, then what has Abraham achieved? For what reason does the Torah record at such painstaking length the claims that Abraham raises in defense? These questions, difficult to begin with, become more so in light of the approach that I introduced above, according to which Abraham sits in judgment. If we adopt this approach, it is certainly very difficult to view Abraham's participation here as something marginal, unrealistic, misguided, and ultimately ineffective. I propose, as does Abarbanel, that when God spoke to Abraham, the fate of Sodom was not yet sealed. God, by informing Abraham, I shall descend now and see, refers to the descent of the angels to Sodom to test its inhabitants' measure of hospitality. Until the people of Sodom come to assault the angels, the city's measure of wickedness is not yet complete. In my view, this serves to explain the difficulty arising from the order of the verses. The logical order of the verses would seem to be, The men got up from there and looked out over Sodom, and Abraham went with them to see them off. Then, the men turned from there and went to Sodom, while Abraham was still standing before God. And finally, God said, Shall I hide from Abraham that which I am going to do? But in the text, verse 22, The men turned from there and went to Sodom, follows immediately after the statement, I shall descend now and see. In other words, it is the same event. God descends to Sodom in the form of the angel's arrival in order to test them and evaluate their actions. The full order of events is therefore as follows. The angels look out over Sodom. Then God hears the cry of the city and wants to descend to see and test them. Then the men turn to go towards Sodom in order to test the city, and Abraham comes to appeal the verdict. However, contrary to Abarbanel, I believe that the people of Sodom were not tested through their treatment of guests, or at least, that this was not what sealed their fate. In my understanding, Abraham was well aware of the nature of Sodom's inhabitants. Chazal expound at length in the Midrash on an earlier test performed in Sodom, not by God sending his angels, but rather by Abraham himself, who sent Eliezer to test the people of the city. Although he knew them, 
Avraham brought his claim before God that the entire city should be saved on account of the righteous people in its midst. Rashi explains the calculation of the number of righteous people on whose behalf Avraham presents his claim. When he pleads for 50, he refers to the possibility that there are 10 righteous people in each city of the Sodom district. When he asks on behalf of 45, he has in mind nine people in each city, with God joining them to form a minyan. When he reaches the number 40, he is thinking of saving only four cities, and likewise when he speaks of 30, 20, and 10. From this, it would appear that just as he hoped that 45 righteous people would save five cities, he likewise calculated that 36 could save four cities, with the addition of the righteous one of the world, God himself. Likewise, 27 could save three cities, 18 could save two cities, and, as Rashi notes, 9 could save one. In Rashi's view, Avraham did not ask on behalf of eight, because Noach and his family numbered eight, and their merit was not enough to save the world. In my view, this explains Avraham's claim as to righteousness and justice. If God would destroy righteous people together with the wicked, according to his argument, divine justice itself would be harmed. Hence, Avraham says, Will the judge of all the world not perform justice? God wants to reveal to Avraham the path of God, to perform righteousness and justice. The righteousness is that even when there is less than a minyan of righteous people in each city, God, who is the righteous one of the world, will join them to form a quorum, saving the wicked stone and its environs from annihilation. As I understand it, the nine righteous people on behalf of whom Avraham asks that stone be saved are Lot and his wife, his two married daughters and their husbands, and his three unmarried daughters, the two whom Lot wanted to send into the hands of the mob in order to save his guests, and his other daughter, Plotit, who was killed on that day by the people of Stom for having given some of her bread to a poor man. It was because of Plotit's cry that God descended to judge Stom. The Midrash recounts, Rabbi Yehuda said, It was announced in Stom that anyone who gave bread to a poor or needy person would be burned with fire. Plotit, Lot's daughter, was married to one of the prominent men of Stom. She saw a certain poor person on the street in the city, and her heart was anguished. What did she do? Every day when she went out to draw water, she would bring in her jug some of whatever she had at home, and she would feed this poor man. People asked, What does this destitute person live on? And when the matter became known to them, they brought her out to be burned. She said, Master of the universe, do justice for me. And her cry came before the throne of glory. At that moment God said, I shall descend now and see... If the people of Sodom have done as the cry of this girl, I shall overturn its foundations. The text does not say, according to their cry, but rather, according to her cry. Thus, Lot's family numbered nine. With the addition of the righteous one of the world, they were a minyan, such that Sodom could be saved in their merit. In my view, God accepted Abraham's judgment, for he had appointed him a judge by coming to his tent. Moreover, although Plotit had died without Abraham's knowledge, and although Lot's wife, his married daughters, and their husbands were adherents of the ways of Sodom, and although they were not worthy of having Sodom saved in their merit, nevertheless God would show favor to Sodom even for the sake of Lot alone, and all because of the principle that Abraham invoked in his judgment. Proof of this may be brought from Tsar, a city that had been saved in the merit of the righteous man who fled there, even though he had none of his party with him except for his two unmarried daughters. He said to him, I have accepted this thing, too, that I will not overthrow the city concerning which you have spoken. Make haste and flee there. We may therefore say that Sodom's test with regard to the angelic guests was a success. One Sodomite put his life on the line and invited them into his home. 
this righteous man, Lot, had the power to save the entire city. But then comes the story of all the people of the city surrounding the house. Abarbanel, as we mentioned, concludes that the city's measure of wickedness was complete when they demanded, Bring them out to us, that we may know them. In my view, it was not at this point that God finally decided to destroy them. Even at this point, the angels did not declare that the destruction was imminent. Rather, the fate of Stone was sealed over a different sin. The people of Stone said, Move away! And they said, This one came to sojourn with us, and has become a judge. Now we will deal worse with you than with them. It was then, and only then, that the angels act. The men put forth their hand and brought Lot into the house with them, and closed the door. And they struck the people at the door of the house with blindness, from young to old, so that they could not find the entrance. And the men said to Lot, Who else do you have here? Son-in-law and your sons and daughters and whatever you have in the city, bring it out of this place, for we are going to destroy this place. The people of Stom intended not only to do evil to the guest, but also came to do evil to Lot, the only righteous man among them, for having welcomed guests hospitably. They no longer recognize his citizenship or his status as a judge. They declare as though he were a stranger, this one came to sojourn in the finest tradition of sodomite treatment of strangers and wanderers. With their own hands, the people of Sodom sever their connection with Lot. Lot would be forced to leave, to flee the city, even were it not about to be destroyed. The angels, in pulling Lot towards them and closing the door, are merely giving expression to the existing situation, the barrier that has suddenly sprung up between Lot and his townspeople. Lot leaves the city no longer a judge and no longer a citizen with equal rights. It is on this point that Sodom's fate is sealed. Not a single righteous person is left in the city. I draw a sharp and clear distinction between the filling of the cup of wickedness of this city of blood and its final verdict. These two, the sin and the judgment, are separated by Abraham's claim concerning the righteous people to be found there. So long as these are in its midst, God must not destroy it. According to my understanding, Sodom's measure of evil was complete already 25 years prior to its destruction. The text tells us, The people of Sodom were exceedingly evil and sinful to God. Immediately thereafter, we read of the war of the kings and the fact that the five cities of the plain fall into the hands of Kedarlaomer and his partners. Sodom and its environs are saved from the fate they deserve in the merit of the one who sojourns among them, Lot. Avram, who hears that his nephew has been captured, pursues Kedarlaomer, and in the act of saving Lot, he also restores the women, the people, and all the property to the king of Sodom. God shows favor to Sodom because of Lot, who dwells there. Now that the cry of the city has risen, God once again agrees to show favor because of the righteous man in its midst. But the people of Sodom, who twenty-five years earlier had accepted Lot to live with them, now banish him. And when not even the single hospitable person who once lived there is left in the city, it no longer has any protection, for we are going to destroy this place. What we have said above would seem to solve another problem. God wants to destroy the entire city of Sodom with no distinction between righteous and wicked, and this indeed is what Abraham argues. Will you destroy the righteous together with the wicked? But in Abraham's judgment, the justice meted out seems no less distorted. Will you destroy and not show favor to the place for the sake of the fifty righteous people who are in its midst? Seemingly, the proper solution would be to put to death the wicked people and to save the righteous, as indeed we read ultimately at the end of the story. Lot is saved while the city is destroyed. This simple solution is not raised by either God or Abraham. 
God and Abraham share the view that there is one verdict for the city as a whole, with no distinctions to be made. The problem of the relationship between the collective and the individual exists in any ruling pertaining to the public. I shall not elaborate on this issue here. Suffice it to say that the same judgment applies to the entire collective. So it is in the mitzvah to wipe out Amalek. The individuals are judged as part of the collective to which they belong, and so it is in all the prophecies with God's decrees on the nations because of their sins. As an example, we may consider the judgment of Nineveh in the book of Yonah. Had the inhabitants of Nineveh not repented, the city would have been overthrown, and more than 120,000 people who did not know their right hand from their left, as well as much livestock, would have died. God has mercy on them only after the people of Nineveh engage in repentance. Likewise, the judgment of Sodom, except that instead of repenting, they sink even deeper into their corruption. God and Abraham agree that a single verdict applies to the entire city, but God judges it according to most of its inhabitants, while Abraham argues for the measure of compassion, that God should show favor even for a small minority, and his argument is accepted. The unacceptable solution, to save the righteous man by removing him from the city and separating him from its wicked people sentenced to death, is one that represents neither the measure of justice nor the measure of compassion. It was the solution created by the people of Sodom, who raised a barrier between themselves and a single righteous man among them. It was also the solution created by the visiting angels, who took the line adopted by the people of Sodom a step further. They pulled Lot to their side of the divide, closed the door, and thereby drew an eternal separation between Lot and the people of the city. I have treated this matter at length in order to clarify the enormous weight that is attached to Abraham's claim that Sodom should be saved for the sake of its righteous inhabitants. This argument was a realistic one, and on the basis of it, the city was to be saved. Abraham's judgment is a true one. Concerning Sodom's verdict, Abraham sits in judgment at the entrance to his tent, at the time when God is revealed to him at Elonim Amre, standing before him like a person standing before a judge.